You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. Let's take our Bibles and go over to Isaiah chapter number 52. Isaiah chapter number 52 this evening. And it's a really good chapter here. We're getting into this section, or still in the middle of this section, that is really dealing a lot with the Messiah, dealing a lot with the servant, with a capital S, the servant. And that's one of the things... I really like about this section, but as we get here into chapter number 52, it begins to speak very forthrightly about the Messiah. And we'll see that again in the next chapter as well, as we saw in chapter number 51. But I also want you to see some continuity between previous chapters and this one. And what do I mean by continuity? We often, we will see a lot of literary um, tools that are used in Isaiah's writing where he will kind of open with a specific subject and then close in the same way, or he will carry from chapter to chapter, which of course for him, it wasn't chapters, um, but it would carry over this kind of repetition as he moves. Well, for example, you know, chapter 51, hearken to me, ye that follow. And we see Hearken unto me in verse number four, verse number seven. Hearken unto me in verse number nine. Awake, awake. Uh, in, see, we see it again in verse number 17. Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem. And then in the beginning of chapter 52, we see it again. Awake, awake. But there is a difference between this one and the previous ones. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Let's read verses 1 through 3 first. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 3 says this, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem, Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. He starts off in verse number one. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Look back at Isaiah 51, verse number nine. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. I want you to remember that because not only do we see here that verse number nine of chapter 51 is kind of saying, Lord, I want you to awake and bring your strength to the problem that we have. But it also specifically refers to the arm of the Lord, the idea of rolling up the sleeves. I often have to do that, uh, you know, because I, I do a lot of dishes. And so I roll my sleeves up because I don't want water all over my dishes. I take my watch off and I set it up on the you know windowsill and then I dig in and, and get, you know, uh, the dishes as clean as is possible. And you roll your sleeves up because you don't want the oil on them. You don't want the blood on them. You don't want, you know, you roll the sleeves up and sometimes you really roll them really high, you know, like they used to back when, and when, when he was a little younger, you rolled them up real high so you could see all the muscles, right? And he says in chapter 51, verse nine, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Well, here in verse number one, he says, put on thy strength, O Zion. And so we see, awake, awake, and this is a call. It's meant to be loud. It's meant to reverberate like the crier who stands up on the steps and cries out to the people, and he's trying to wake them up like an alarm clock. Not all alarm clocks are very pleasing or pleasant, are they? When I was in college, you know, there were four of us sleeping in the dorm room together, and um, if we all had to get up at different times, well, we all had different alarm clocks which kind of stinks if you're the guy that wants to sleep in a little bit longer than everybody else, because then you get woken up three times before it's time for you to get up by everybody else's alarm clock. And mine is a was a very, very, very loud alarm clock. But before it would go off, I would hear a little click like the speaker turned on, and then the buzzing would begin. 
And I got to the point where I could hear that click of the speaker clicking on like it was about to start. And then I could get to the snooze button before it would actually go off because that was the easiest button to find on it. So it's the biggest button, right? Uh, they need to make the off button the biggest button. But anyways, I'll set that aside. And I'd get to that snooze button because, well, I was always worried about annoying my roommates, which I'm sure I did in a whole host of other ways. But at least that wasn't one of the ways that I annoyed my roommates. And this alarm blaring, awake, awake. And the information that follows is, put on thy strength, O Zion. What else are they supposed to be putting on here? Again, this is a different message than what we have been reading. We've been talking about God strengthening himself and coming to the rescue of Israel. Now he says, Israel, we've talked about your captivity and we've talked about your release. Now let's talk about how I want you to respond. He says, put on strength. You know who puts on strength? Healthy people who are eating what they are supposed to be eating or eating enough who are getting exercise, who are growing appropriately, they're putting on strength. Notice what else he says after that. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Why would you put on beautiful garments? We put on garments to come to church this evening that you might consider to be beautiful. Uh, maybe not. These are probably not the garments you would have chosen to wear to go out and chop wood. Uh, probably not the garments that you would go out and get down in the dirt in the garden and, and plant or hoe potatoes with. It's probably not the garments that you would wear to bed, unless you're super lazy and don't want to you know, change your clothes before bed tonight. You probably put on the kind of garments to wear to church, which are going to be nice looking. They maybe cost a little bit more, uh, but to present yourself in a nice way. In other words, Israel, you're not going to be wearing sackcloth and ashes. Israel, we're, not, we're, we're talking about a time of uh, affluence. We're talking about a time of blessing here, where you're putting on strength, so you're eating well. You're safe. You're able to work. You're able to move and exercise. You're at peace. You're able to put on your fine garments, which means you're not slaves, which means uh, that you're not out in the fields working nonstop, that you're not sitting in sackcloth and ash. He says, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Why? For henceforth there shall come no more into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. And you can see this image of a captured people, a people with dust all over them, wearing sackcloth, who have been servants or slaves, who have been under the plow for so long. And now he holds his hand out to them and he says, Israel, it's time to strengthen yourself. Get up. Dust yourself off, get cleaned up, put on your nice clothes. It's time to eat well and strengthen yourselves because no more will the uncircumcised or the unclean come in unto thee. The idea like of Babylon coming in to Jerusalem and, and, and sacking Jerusalem. He says, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck. You can take off the bands that hold you there, the chains that hold you, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, but then here is a, a statement that is made. You read it yourself. He says, you have sold yourselves for naught or for nothing. You've sold yourselves for nothing. Here he's saying it's time to get up. It's time to dust yourselves off. It's time to get off of the floor and to start sitting in the chairs. It's time to put on the nice clothes. You sold yourselves into slavery for nothing. You didn't even get anything out of it. It wasn't God that sold them into slavery. You sold yourselves for naught, for nothing. But I bought you back. I redeemed you without money, he says. You sold yourselves for nothing, and I redeemed you back, but not with nothing. Jerusalem could put on clothes of beauty and glory here because the time of judgment was over. This is that, that, that turning from a time of judgment to a time of blessing, which we saw beginning in chapter number 40. From prophecies of judgment to prophecies of hope, like we saw in chapter 40, he is saying here, your judgment time is, is going to be over, Isaiah prophesies. And again, we're talking about a near fulfillment when Cyrus of Persia allows them to return back to Jerusalem and a distant fulfillment, which has yet to happen. 
when Israel is drawn back to Jesus Christ and he descends down there upon Mount Zion once more into the city of Jerusalem. He descends and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. And then will they have no enemy who can overcome them. He says, you shall be redeemed without money. Bought back, but not with cash or coins. But does that mean that it costs nothing? No doubt you've heard and learned in life that nothing is free, right? Anytime something is offered for free, it is costing somebody. And we've also learned that anytime something is dangled in front of us for free that seems too good to be true, it usually is because it has a hook inside of it. It has a hook uh, which is going to cause much damage. But you see, he purchased Israel back, just like he purchased you and I back. But was it with money? No. But was it free and worth less? No. It came at great cost. Now, later in chapter 52, we'll begin to read about that great cost that had to be paid. The cost of redemption. It was paid by someone else. Look at verse 4. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. He says, my, my people went down aforetime into Egypt. There were 400 years where uh, the people of Israel, as they grew in strength and numbers, were subjected to, to slavery while they were down in Egypt. And God heard the people's cry and allowed them to leave. He freed them from it. Then came the Assyrian. Then came the Babylonians. Just like he freed them from Egypt, he freed Jerusalem from the Assyrian oppressor. Now he says this, They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Think about this. The conqueror comes in and he destroys your walls and he destroys your armies and he takes, he topples your king and your government and takes your people captive and leads them away in chains. Hundreds, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them all over the empire of that time. And the whole world says that the Babylonian gods must have been more powerful than the God of Israel. That Yahweh was not powerful enough to prevent Israel's defeat and capture. And so for days and years, even decades, the name of God was blasphemed. As the slaves, uh, wherever they happened to be at that time, Babylon or any other number of cities, as they um, worked and toiled, their masters said, oh, you're praying to your gods. What good do your gods do you? Your gods couldn't save you from us. Why do you even bother to still pray to them? And God is, God's name is blasphemed year after year, decade after decade. He says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Let God's name be known. Let it be known and praised among my people. It's bad enough that the world does not know and honor God, but can his people at least know him and say his name and honor him? Can the people of Israel do it at the very least? Can his church, his bride do it? It's bad enough the world does not know and honor God, but it's even more tragic when his own people don't know him or honor him. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. When Isaiah got up and he began his oratory before the people, some no doubt sat there and thought to themselves, well, this man's making this stuff up. He's trying to build a profession for himself. He's trying to gain a following. He's trying to make some important person out of himself. That's all this man is doing. And others did not hear the voice of God in the voice of 
of Isaiah. They shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Now that's to be expected among the heathen nations. But it should never be so among God's people. That when the word of God is opened, that we don't hear it speak. When the word of God is opened and read, do you listen? Do you listen for the words of God in there? Do you listen for the moving of the Holy Spirit in your own heart? When the word of God is read and are quoted, if you're like me, sometimes it's easy to get this tendency to kind of skip over the Bible verses. Maybe you're reading an article, and I get to do this sometimes too. I'm reading an article, and I'm more interested in what the guy had to say than what the verses had to say. And so I'll get to the verse. Oh, I already read the, I already know the verse. I'll skip over it and continue where he was reading. Or if I'm reading through a book and I see a passage of scripture that's been put in there, I have a tendency to skip over it because I'm more interested in what the man has to say than what God has to say. Is there an excuse for that? No, nothing but laziness, really. Maybe a lack of respect for the word of God. Oh, I've read that before, heard that before. When in reality, the Bible says that, you know, there is nothing new under the sun as far as mankind is concerned. There's nothing a man is going to write in a book or is going to write in an article or in a blog post that is anything new except pointing out that which has already been there from the beginning. No, we shouldn't skip over the word of God. We should read it. We go on and look at verse number seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm. There you see it popping up again, this the, the holy arm of God. Like I said, you know, pay attention because you saw it. You saw it back there in uh, chapter 51, verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And now he says, now that the judgment time is over and the deliverance has come, he said, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. We back up. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Of course, it reminds us of how beautiful are the feet of them that bringeth the gospel and bringeth the good news. We see great similarities between those two passages. Isaiah pro prophesies here of, of beautiful feet of those who bring the gospel or the good news. You know, it's no wonder that the Bible says that they have good feet, that, that they have beautiful feet, because they're out partnering with God for salvation of men. They're not selling vacuums. They're not going door to door for a political campaign or to raise money for their Girl Scout or Cub Scout. They're not going door to door trying to seek anything out for themselves. But they bring good news and it gains them nothing. Sometimes it costs, though, it costs time, energies, effort. And sometimes more than that, to be the bearer of the good news of the gospel. And all of this, these good news and these tidings here, which are you know, carried from the mountaintops, can be summed up in these three words that we just read there, where he says, Thy God reigneth. Thy God reigneth. Israel, the same God that created Adam and Eve, and put them in that garden. The same God that created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. It amazes me that that argument is, is really fighting its way back again. The argument, even among Christians, that the earth uh, was still created in millions or billions of years. But the Bible says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. 
No matter how many explanations I have heard of people saying that, well, a day is an age. Because sometimes we use that term day. In his day, they used to do this. Well, he lived more than one day. Uh, he lived maybe 80 years. So in this case, day refers to 80 years. Yeah, but the Bible literally says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. I don't really know how you get around that. And I've not heard any adequate explanation, even from the, the devil's advocate point of view. I've never heard any adequate explanation concerning that. Anyways, I leave that aside. But the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who told, promised Abraham that he would provide a son for him in his old age, and that through that son would come a mighty nation, and that from that mighty nation, another son would be born, who would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who then would shed his blood, and would die to become the promised sacrifice that was given as a promise to Adam and Eve way back in the garden at the fall. This promise that was made to Adam back then, the promise that was made to Abraham, the promise that was made to David, that a son will come, this same God, who knew way back then exactly what mankind in 2024 would need and set the, the wheels into motion to bring that into place, the Messiah that you and I still need today, that same God reigns, present tense, progressive, continuing on. He reigned supreme. And just because we've gone to the moon, just because we have microscopes that can look down even to the, to the atomic level, just because we have learned psychology and we have learned all about the human body, just because we have sent satellites and, and, and rovers to Mars, just because we have reached outside of our tiny, tiny, tiny little bubble that we live in in this universe, does not mean that we now are exempt from needing a God. He still reigns supreme even to this day. And if he does not come back soon, and the world goes on for another 500 years, and a colony begins to uh, be built on the moon or on Mars or any other interesting thoughts we might have concerning those things, if space travel becomes um, normal, our God still reigns supreme. These are the glad tidings that Israel needed to hear. These are the glad tidings that you and I need to hear today too. God reigns supreme. And so tomorrow, if the missiles start flying from nation to nation, we need to understand that God reigns. Our God reigns. What does that mean? That means he's in charge. Even if little peon man over here pushes the red button and little peon man over here pushes the red button and fires missiles at each other, and even if we're in the crossfire, understand this, they are finite beings. They will answer for their actions. And you and I are headed to an eternity, if you're saved, an eternity in heaven anyways. Be it tomorrow, 20, 30, 40 years down the road or more, we're headed to an eternity in heaven where we will live forever with Him and with each other. Because our God reigns. He is supreme over all things. He is in utter control over all things. Even the heart of the prince is in the hand of God. When God reigns, peace reigns. You say, but we don't see much peace in the world. Well, you see, the world has another prince, the prince of the power of the air, whom God is allowing for a time to be in charge down here, allowing him to roam freely, to do as he wants, to tempt to destroy, but that will come to an end because our God reigns. And when Satan has been dealt with, when he is bound and he is cast into the lake of fire, Jesus Christ stands on Mount Zion and rules and reigns for that 1,000 years 
no doubt you will hear the words, Your God reigns, literally, from Jerusalem, over the entire world. Your God reigns. But let's, let's, let's make the world a whole lot smaller here for a second. And let's just think about ourselves. We're good at that, aren't we? <laughs> we're, we're good at being selfish and thinking about ourselves. Does God reign in your heart? Where God reigns, peace reigns. But that does not mean that there's no trouble. There's just peace in the midst of the storm. That doesn't mean that the waves never get high. It just means that he stands there and says, you can walk on them if you have enough faith. And when you begin to fall, he's there to reach his hand out and bring you back up again. When you call out to him, where God reigns, peace reigns. Where God reigns, glad tidings reign. Where God reigns, salvation reigns. Notice the, the watchman here that he was talking about. He says, thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. What's he talking about here, these watchmen? The watchmen who see this happy return are probably um, those in Jerusalem who had been long awaiting these messengers. According to Ezekiel, the prophets were the leading watchmen of the nation. Ezekiel refers to the prophets, those who had the office specifically of preaching the, the, the unrevealed words of God to the people of Israel. Here they were considered the watchmen of the nation, according to him. He says here, thy watchmen shall lift up the voice with the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Isaiah, I dare say, is one of these watchmen who stands and lifts up his voice and sees right there to his face, eye to eye, face to face. He can see the salvation. He can see when the Lord shall bring again Zion. He says, break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed. Again, we see this term redeemed. Not with money, but redeemed at great cost. Someone had to pay. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. Again, that thought began in chapter 51, verse number 9, where he said, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And I said back then, in chapter 51, that here this, this awake, awake, he's not literally you know, telling God to wake up and to see what's happening and come help us because he never slumbers, nor doth he sleep. It was to help Israel to understand that God is watching. You need to awake to this, Israel, to, 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 to pray for and seek after the strong arm of the Lord. And so we see the fulfillment of it now in chapter 52 when he says, the Lord hath made bare his holy arm. The Lord hath shown his strength. The strength here is his holy arm. No wonder it's a time of joy, a time of singing. Again, this idiom is the idea of rolling up your long, loose sleeves before you start to work. So when the arm is bared, it's a, a symbol of a mighty undertaking, a symbol of initiative, getting down to business. But then he also says, in the eyes of all the nations. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God does not make his saving strength known just for those who are immediately rescued. He also does it as a witness and a testimony to others. So they can see you pulled out of the fire. They can see you rescued. So they can see Israel when Israel is able to return. And then he blesses the city so that they can rebuild the temple and the walls. And they grow. And the, the heathen nations right surrounding them like Sanballat and Tobiah that desired to keep Jerusalem as a waste place. They can be discomfited. And they can see how God blesses his people, and they can't stand against it. In the eyes of all the nations, 
and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And again, I think this ultimately really speaks towards a distant fulfillment that we haven't experienced yet. When all of the nations see a Jesus Christ, when all of the nations shall see the salvation of our God, look at verse 11. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord, for ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your war, your re-reward. We'll talk about that word in a little bit. We go back to verse number 11. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. This is uh, different from what we've just been reading. We see, hearken unto me. We see, hearken unto me. We see, awake, awake. And now he repeats himself, depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence. He speaks to the captives and he says, get up and begin to walk away. But he gives a warning here, touch no unclean thing. Just because you've been living in slavery and, po and poverty, just because you have been harmed for so long, just because it's come to nothing, this isn't the time for you to take vengeance. This isn't the time for you to continue to partake in the, the, the evils of the worlds around you. Now it is time for you to be careful what it is you touch should do. Touch not the unclean thing, he says. Go out, go ye out of the midst of her. This is get out of the midst of Babylon. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord? This is a call to return to holiness. This is, they've been gone for so long. They've been gone for what, 70 years? It's time you need to remember how to be clean and right before God. We just went through the story with our kids twice recently um, about uh, the story of Uzzah and King David trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to uh, Jerusalem. We heard an episode on uh, Adventures in Odyssey where they they basically say, what if this is the story behind Uzzah and Obed-Edom? And so they kind of did this, you know, episode on, well, you know, me, what if this is, you know, the, the, the surrounding events, you know, in Obed-Edom's house when the Ark of the Covenant is brought to him? And uh, I asked, you know, my kids, I said, well, if you were walking next to that cart, and you saw this most holy artifact, this most holy thing about to fall off of the cart into the mud, wouldn't your natural reaction be to reach up and to touch it and to keep it from getting muddy like that? I said, but imagine this for a second. What if we're glowing red hot? Now, it's still the Ark of the Covenant. It is still this most holy and precious object, but it's glowing red hot. Would your natural reaction be to reach up and touch it? No. Why? Because you'd be afraid of hurting yourself. Because you understood what glowing red hot meant. It meant burning me. It meant hurting me. It meant do not touch, even if it is to go in the mud. You see, Uzzah and King David himself and others did not view the Ark of the Covenant with the, in the same way that God viewed it. They should have been viewing it as red hot, do not touch. It should have never been on that cart in the first place. Of course, you're well aware of that. That is not how it was supposed to be carried. They were not treating it with the respect that it deserved. They were not behaving in holiness as it was required. This is why David was so pained and troubled after Uzzah died. I don't understand what happened. I was trying to do what was right, and yet this happened. I thought I was doing a good thing, and God reminds them, Sincerity is not enough. Obedience is. Think about Saul trying to offer sacrifices instead of allowing Samuel to come and do it. Sincerity, no matter how sincere Saul may have been, it was not enough. Because God would rather have obedience than the fat of rams. God would have rather they obeyed and carried the Ark of the Covenant exactly how it was supposed to be done than for them to have been trying to do a good thing, but in the wrong way. David had a hard lesson to learn there. And of course, he then had the Ark of the Covenant moved into the house of Obed-Edom before it was greatly, greatly blessed during that three-month time period that it was in that house. 
we read that passage last night. I said, well, we'll go and read the passage so that you can see, you know, what the Bible has to say about it. Um, you know, to help, to help prevent confusion. Sometimes when you hear a what if story, sometimes you get confused with the details, what the Bible actually says. And we read it and uh, talked about it a little bit. But he says to Israel here, go out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Don't forget, you know, I, yes, I'm releasing you. I'm freeing you to go back. This is a joyous time, but don't forget what, what got you in this place in, in this, in this problem in the first place. It was your disobedience and lack of respect towards the things of God that got you in this mess in the first place. And so I want you to cleanse yourself and be clean, continue to be clean. He goes on to say, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. In other words, when it's time for you to go, I'm going to release you and you're not going to have to escape. You're not going to have to run and hope you won't get caught. You're going to be able to freely walk away. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear reward. The Lord will go before you. He's the scouts at the front of the column. He's going before you, and he's securing passage. He is clearing the way. He is paying the fare. He's making it so that you can freely go. But he's also the rear reward. This is that rear guard. He has got your back, is kind of what it's saying here. He's back there making sure nothing sneaks up on you, that nothing takes you from behind or by surprise. He goes before you and he follows up behind you because he, well, to repeat myself, our God reigns. Then we get to verse number 13 and 14. It says this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. We go back and he says, Behold my servant. We see servant mentioned here again. Now this passage here through the end of Isaiah 53 focuses in on the servant of the Lord, that is Jesus Christ. This same servant is spoken of back in chapter 42. In chapter 49, here he's being spoken of again. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch back in Acts 8, verse number 34, he is sitting there reading Isaiah 52. Remember, he's in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah 52 and he doesn't understand it. And God calls Philip to go out into the wilderness unbeknownst to Philip as to why he's going out in the wilderness. He's just obeying. And then here he sees this Ethiopian eunuch and God tells him to go and join himself unto him. So he goes and jumps in and he says, what's going on? And he says, I'm reading this passage and I just don't understand it. Well, what passage are you reading? And he reads a section here from Isaiah 52, 13. And he asks this question, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Same question as asked today. The answer is still important. Who is the prophet speaking of? We know it is the servant, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The book of Isaiah uses the term servant for many different things. Isaiah refers to himself as a servant. Eliakim is referred to as a servant. David, Israel itself is referred to as God's servant. But there is no doubt here that this phrase here and in some of the other passages that I have mentioned specifically applies to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's, it amazes me how a Jewish person can read chapters 52, chapter 53 and not see Jesus in it. But that shouldn't amaze us. Because the fact is, what we have decided about Jesus affects how we're going to understand it. We have decided that he's the Messiah. Therefore, it makes obvious sense to us when we read that passage. But they have decided that he is not. And so what we have to try to encourage folks to do is to put away the preconceived notions about who Jesus is and let the word of God tell you who he is. Let the word of God simply explain it. There's so many times somebody will come to me with some very strange off-the-wall doctrine that I have never heard before, or some strange thinking, and they'll, they'll have their pet passage or two that they're going to use to back it up, and I'll think, there is no way in the world that you were reading the Bible and came across this verse and thought, well, that's weird. The Bible says the earth is flat. 
There's no way that you were reading and came to that conclusion. You were, you were taught that conclusion and somebody gave you from verses, some verses to back it up. Or you went verse mining, as I like to call it. And you went to go find a nugget or two to back it up. We need to let the word of God teach us. We need to let it put together the lines, the links in the chain for us. It says, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The very first words of the Lord in the mouth of the prophet regarding his servant was declaring the servant's victory. He shall be exalted and extolled, meaning that the Messiah is going to triumph. Strange words to say before the next phrases that are about to come out of his mouth. He's going to be victorious. It's going to be glorious. He's going to triumph. But then he begins to talk about the suffering. But it's good. Before we talk about the suffering, it's good to be reminded that he wins. In the end, he wins. Some people can't handle, you know, to, to go through the hard part of a story without knowing in the end, you know, that the, the guy and the girl get together. So now I can go through the hard part of the story because I know they're going to get together in the end. Or I know he's going to survive at the end of the book. So I can go ahead and, and watch him go through this serious illness because I already know he's going to survive. So it's not going to bother me quite so much. We know he's going to triumph. We're given that information already. But then they make a curious statement here. His visage was so marred more than any man. This, of course, speaks of the cruel beatings that Jesus endured. He was beaten so badly that his own friends had a hard time recognizing him. He hardly even looked like a man. It was so shocking that many were astonished or astonished when they saw him. In Luke 22, verse number 63, it says this, And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. They beat him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? They played sick games with him. And of course, you know, when you are punched in the face, especially by grown soldiers, it causes some great damage to your face. Not just bruises, but cuts. There's a great amount of swelling. Sometimes your, your eyes you know, are swollen completely shut so that you can't even see out of them. And your face becomes very deformed. Sometimes I think that, um, I wonder, I guess I should say, if when he stood before his disciples in the upper room and before Thomas, I mean, we know that the scars were still there in his hand, right? We know that he said, Thomas, go ahead and touch the scars in my hands. Were those the only scars that were still there? I would imagine the scars all over his back from the whipping he took, probably still there. The scars from the thorns that went into his head, which caused, I'm sure, great swelling and great pressure on his scalp. I'm sure those were still there. What about the scars, which were only a couple days old, that were all over his face from the beating that he took? You know, we often get this picture of this this kind, gentle, soft-looking Jesus with a few red marks on his arms standing there in the upper room, but he was marred so much he didn't even look like a man. I can only imagine a few days later, standing before his disciples in the upper room, he didn't look a whole lot better than that. But did that matter to them? No. He was alive. And that meant everything to them. Because that meant that everything he had been telling them all along was true. He really was the Son of God. If there was any doubt in their minds, it was alleviated at this point. He really was the Son of God. There was a time in John 21, 12, where uh, they're out fishing and he calls out to them and says, Come and dine. It says, And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. I wonder if his face was still so messed up. They knew it was him, even if they had a hard time recognizing him. I don't know the answers to those questions, and to be honest, it's not important. We don't need to trouble ourselves about seeing a, quote-unquote, ugly Jesus in heaven. I know we have in our minds what we expect him to look like. 
We expect the scars to still be there. I don't know how time works exactly in heaven. We know that a day is as a thousand years on earth in heaven. I don't know what he's going to look like if he'll be healed up or if the evidence of his sacrifice will still be quite telling on his body. And I think it will be. And I kind of think that's important. It doesn't matter what he looks like. If the scars do remain, and I think they will because he is, after all, a man. And he is God, but he is alive today. That's because he resurrected. Which makes me think the scars are still there. Is it going to decrease or minimize his glory in any way? I mean, a woman has to have a, a C-section in order to have her child. It leaves a scar. Does that minimize her beauty or her glory in any way? Well, to some, they might say yes. But not to the ones who love her. To the ones who love her, that means sacrifice. It only increases her beauty and her value. And the scars, which probably remain on Jesus' body to this day, I think only increase his glory and should only increase his beauty to our eyes. Because then every time we lay eyes upon him, we will see the evidence of what he had to go through for us. Every day we walk down a street of gold. We walk past other Christians. We walk past disciples. We walk past Christians from ancient Ephesus. Oh, and then we see Jesus. And as we see Jesus, I don't know if in heaven we're going to shake hands or greet each other with a kiss or how it's going to work in heaven, but whenever we see him, we see those scars. It'll remind us, just like when you see a soldier who's been wounded in battle, you see that he's missing a leg or an arm or an eye, or you see that he was burned on his face. And every time you see him, it reminds you of what he sacrificed for the nation. Changes sometimes how you're going to treat the person. But then every time we see Jesus, it stands as a badge of his matchless love to us. When the Bible says here, more than any man, does it, does it mean that he uh, literally was, was damaged physically more than any other man? I mean, it's, it's hard to think that because men have been burned at the stake uh, to the point where their bodies were completely unrecognizable as human bodies, among many other things that have happened to human bodies you know, over the, over the millennia that the earth has been around. I don't think that's the point. I think here that this is hyperbole that is being used to impress upon us the terrible effect that was taken on Jesus' body, the terrible beating that he endured. What's the point here? He told us that he was going to be triumphant already. Isaiah told us that. And then he tells us that that same Messiah, when he comes, is going to endure something very horrible, a terrible something the information is not given to us right here, but he's going to bear something horrible that is going to mar his body terribly. Almost like it's, it's like a, a little tidbit of information or truth that makes you wonder, what? Wait, what? The servant, the Messiah is, you're saying that this is going to happen to him? Well, what are you talking about? I need more information, please. And Isaiah says, well, good. Stick around for next week for Isaiah 53, and you'll get more information about what that means. But before we end, verse number 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. He says here, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling, this term is often associated with cleansing from sin. Like when the, the, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was sprinkled with blood on that one day a year, when Jesus also sprinkled the mercy seat in heaven, sprinkling is often associated with cleansing from sin. And so here, the promise is that the work of the Messiah isn't going to just save Israel. And so here, Israel is being spoken to at this time when Isaiah was speaking it. But he says, your Messiah who is going to come is going to sprinkle or is going to see the, the, the forgiveness of sins 
for many nations, not just you, but for many nations one day. Yes, the Messiah is Israel's Messiah, but he belongs to much more than Israel. Which again brings me back to the point of Israel. Yes, it was to provide a, a, a lineage for, the, for Jesus to be born in, but it was more than that. They were to be vessels. They were to be used. They were to be, to, to be a light and a testimony for God. And they couldn't do that. Which is why he has now turned to the church. For us to be a light and a testimony and to be vessels and to be used by God. He says here that kings shall shut their mouths at him. They're going to be astonished at his appearance too. They'll have nothing to say against him. When they see his glory, when they see his great work, it's going to stop up their words. They'll be choked up. Whenever they spoke against Jesus or spoke against God before, at his appearing, there'll be nothing that's going to come out of their mouths at all. They'll be swallowing all those words that they said against God before that. When they spoke against him before, they spoke in, bind, in blindness. But now, for that which had not been told them, they shall see. They shall see Jesus Christ in his glory, which is the glory of God. Now, chapter 52 ends. But... The story here about the servant of God does not end. It continues on into chapter 53. And it begins to give us a description of what is to transpire with the Messiah, with the servant of God when he comes. And so as we read through this next week, I want you to look for Jesus in this passage. But I also want you to consider this, maybe as you as maybe read it this week and think about it and consider this. What was Isaiah's point in delivering this to the people of Israel? I think this was a thousand years before Jesus. Why, why is he going through the trouble of delivering this prophecy to them? What was his purpose? What was the information he was trying to get across to them? I encourage you to consider that and to think about that and we will uh, get back together again tomorrow, Wednesday evening, next Wednesday evening, and go over Isaiah chapter number 53. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.